Well, sisters and brothers, uh, I have good news for you and I have bad news for you. The, the bad news is that we are still in Luke 12, a very difficult chapter. It continues to be difficult today. Um, the good news is that this is the last time that we're looking at Luke 12. Next week, we get to move on to Luke 13, and that is just nothing but rainbows and unicorns after that. That's actually not true, but it maybe does get a little bit lighter. Uh, you know, uh, Scripture is much like our lives. We go through times that are very challenging, and we need to hear these truths. Uh, and then we go through times when it's a little bit more comforting. Um, but we continue to be in Luke 12. We're almost, we've been uh, looking at this for almost a year now, the Gospel of Luke, uh, if you can believe it. And we are just about halfway through. So uh, if you don't really like the Gospel of Luke, don't, just hold on. You only have another year. All right? So... Here we are, and Luke and Jesus is continuing to talk, uh, sometimes to the disciples, sometimes to the larger crowd. And with that, let's listen to um, Luke's uh, gospel and his telling. Here's what Jesus says. I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already ablaze. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say, it's going to rain, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Thus, when you go with your accuser before a magistrate on the way, make an effort to reach a settlement, or you may be dragged before the judge, and the judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer throw you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we pause once again in gratitude for you and for your word. Where there are defenses, Lord, we pray that you would lay them down. Where there are excuses, that you would lay them aside. Help us to remember just how loved we are by you. That we might be free to hear And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, you know, I think that when we kind of talked about the title for this whole series, this two-year-long series, it looks like it's going to be, uh, Seeing Jesus Anew, I'm not sure that, um, that we always knew exactly in what ways we would be seeing Jesus anew. Uh, but what we've begun to discover, of course, is that in some of these ways, they are ways that are very comforting and that bring us encouragement and hope. 
And in other ways, of course, uh, seeing Jesus anew confronts us. It makes us feel uneasy, perhaps, somewhat uh, discomforted uh, by what we see. And, and that continues, of course, today. I, I like the way that Scott Hosey says that we need to make sure we are always approaching Jesus. He says that Jesus in our lives can easily turn into some kind of a Rorschach ink blot in which we see whatever it is that we want. Where there is no perception that is better than any other, that Jesus is understood to simply validate what is our best and our brightest. Or whoever you are, whatever you want, and that following him is mostly about being nice, about getting along, about endorsing any kind of viewpoint that one might have. And as we said last week, and as we've been saying over the last few weeks, what we begin to learn is that Jesus does not want to be molded into what we want. Instead, we are called to take Jesus seriously for who he is and to be molded like he is. Now, I have to say that oftentimes I kind of think that this is more of just a present day issue, right? I think, oh, well, we're the ones who are always trying to mold Jesus into, we, into what we want, and we are the ones who are really struggling with this because it's been so long since Jesus was here. But what we begin to see in a passage like today is that actually this has been around for quite some time. In fact, even when Jesus was alive and was right there in their presence, even then it seems, as we see in this passage, that people are continually misconstruing and misunderstanding Jesus. They are continuing to want him to be exactly what it is that they want rather than who he actually is. Now, we're going to talk about that, but before so, I want to start by looking at verse 50. As we say, you know, if you don't start at the right place, it is quite certain that you will end up at the wrong destination. So I want us to start at the right place, which is understanding, again, the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is. In verse 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it doesn't mean his actual baptism like we might think about it, right? This is not the water baptism, and we know that because he's already been baptized. We studied that uh, uh, many months ago now. We know that he was already baptized. So what commentators say, the baptism to which Jesus is speaking here is his crucifixion. It is the upcoming crucifixion. You know, and as we talked about uh, uh, this section, the whole middle section of Luke, we said that all of it is kind of as they turn toward Jerusalem, toward the cross, so that everything now that Jesus is seeing and everything that he's talking about it is all under the lens of this cross and this is the direction to which Jesus is now headed and it says in the NRSV that he is constrained but that's not really a great word that's not a great interpretation a better interpretation is that he is stressed or distressed and uh, Tim Keller says that perhaps a better way to see this is that he is being constantly and feels as if he is constantly being attacked he said the image is kind of like a city that is constantly being uh, embattled. I, I, remi I was reminded today of, is it Bakhmut, I think, in, uh, in Ukraine, in this city that is just constantly under attack. And Jesus says, this is what I feel like. And I think that's really important for us to just take that into consideration because, again, it's one of these rare glimpses into the humanity of 
Jesus. We oftentimes begin to believe that Jesus is simply this, this robot, if you will, for whom you know, he can mechanically endure all the suffering, all the mockery, all the pain, all the affliction. It doesn't really bother him because he's this machine. But we see in this, this descriptor right here that he feels fully all of the pain that he is enduring and that he knows what is coming. And you see, what's important for us about that is that what he realizes is that he is enduring all of this and he is doing it out of his love for us. So from the very beginning, as we think about this passage, we must remember that Jesus has this passionate love for us and it is out of this pain and out of this desire and this love for us that he says everything else that he does. Because if we don't understand that, then everything else that Jesus says, we think, oh, he just must not like us. He must just be angry. He must want us to just have all these problems for absolutely no reason. He wants us to suffer just because he likes for us to suffer because he's a taskmaster. No, no, no. He does all of this out of this incredibly deep Love for us. But what that means is that Jesus then has got to tell us the truth. And you see, the truth is what we oftentimes do not want to hear. We would much prefer for someone, as Scripture says, to tickle our ears. I always love that descriptor. Just tickle our ears. Don't, don't tell us the truth. Now, we, we rarely actually say that, but this is what we really want. And this is why Jesus causes so much division and pain. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded once again of the prophet Jeremiah. Last week we talked about that is because I was reading a book by Eugene Peterson about that. But this week uh, I just thought about it because I remembered uh, something that happens um, in the 29th chapter of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah, again, was a prophet and Jeremiah was not loved by most people. Why? Because he was not tickling their ears, right? He just loved to just tell people the truth. Actually, I'm not sure he didn't really love telling them the truth. He just did it because he felt like he needed to. And so he was not very popular. And, and he was slapped in the face. He was, he was thrown into the stockade. He was, uh, he was thrown into a cistern. Uh, they did not like Jeremiah because he was telling them the truth. And in Jeremiah 29, you have the people of Judah, uh, and, and, and many of them are in exile in Babylon. You might remember this. And they didn't want to be in exile in Babylon. They were forced to be there. And what did they want? Like any of us, they wanted simply to go home. They wanted to go back to Jerusalem. Just take us back to Jerusalem. There are people there who speak our language, people who, who look like us, people who talk like us. They know our customs. They worship the exact same God. That's what we want. We just want to be back there. We want to go back to to, to Jerusalem, and there was a prophet named Hananiah, and Hananiah was the ear tickler. And Hananiah said, oh, I've got good news for you, people of Judah, who are now over in, in, in Babylon. Don't unpack your bags. Don't get comfortable there. Don't worry. You're not going to have to change. Stay just like you are, because very, very soon, you're coming back to Jerusalem. And you know what? They loved it. Their ears were tickled. They couldn't wait. Yes. We got to go. Nothing has to change. No more pain. We just go back to the homeland. And Jeremiah said, no. No, no, Hananiah. No, no. 
you know, those of you who are in exile. He says, instead, you need to start planting. You need to start building. You need to settle down. You need to invest in the kingdom. You're not going anywhere for 70 years, which meant for most of them, this is going to be where you died. Do you think they liked to hear that from Jeremiah? No. But I love how Walter Brueggemann describes this kind of prophecy. It's a prophecy, this kind of hardline prophet, much like what we see have been seeing in Jesus in the 12th chapter. And here's what Walter Brueggemann says. He says, prophetic faith is hard-nosed realism that is resistant to romantic, ideological escapism. I love that, this hard-nosed realism who says, we are not going to play this kind of escapist game at all. If you want, you can live with these false illusions of peace and contentment and joy, right? They could have just sat there and thought, the people in, in Babylon, oh, we'll just kind of keep our heads buried. Someday we're, we're just going to go back real soon. Nothing bad's going to happen. We can just live in that. Or, 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 or for Jesus' day, you know, you can just have peace without any kind of real discomfort or any kind of challenges or pain. And you can live like that. But they said no. Jeremiah and Jesus said no to the Hananiahs that were in their midst that were promising peace when there was not going to be peace. You see, it seems that in Jesus' day, you had those Hananias who were saying, come on, Jesus, just, just relax. We can actually all get along here. You know what you can do? And they're telling people, you can just sprinkle a little Jesus on whatever you're doing. It's just like a little flavoring. Little salt and pepper Jesus. You just kind of, you just do that and nothing has to change. You can keep doing everything you've been doing and, and nobody needs to get upset. And nobody really needs to change. There doesn't need to be any pain or division. You just sprinkle Jesus. Just a little dab will do you. And you just do that and everything will be fine. But Jesus is too committed to the truth. And he, what he wants them to know is that following him will be meaningful and it will be challenging. It will be deeply rich and it will be a struggle. It will be life-giving and it will be death-demanding. And he refuses to not tell them the truth of what this journey is going to look like. Like, I love how Dallas Willard puts this. He says this. He says, Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we don't have to. He died on the cross so that we might join him there. Don't you love Luke 12? He died on the cross so that we might join him there. Now, why? Why is following Jesus difficult? Why is it hard? Why, why would it be so painful? Why would it require any kind of suffering at all? Well, verse 49 kind of helps us to get at this. Verse 49, Jesus says that he has come to cast fire upon the earth. Now, what does that mean? Just kind of throwing fire this way and that like a dragon? Is this what Jesus is talking about? No. The, the fire can mean many things throughout Scripture. It can be the presence of God, right? We see that uh, in Moses in the burning bush. Uh, we see it being like the Holy Spirit. Remember on Pentecost when they came down like tongues of fire. Um, but what Megan Feldmeyer says is that what it also can be oftentimes is purifying. It can be something that, that, that it's like a refiner's 
fire, right? What that means, of course, is that it will both change, but it will not destroy. It purifies, but it also makes one more beautiful. And this is what has to occur. What Jesus is saying, again, is if we want to be molded to look more like him and not try to mold Jesus to look more like us, then that is going to require some kind of transformation and change. And what most of us know is that if you actually want real change and not pseudo change, that it happens, it occurs only when we are willing to endure a bit of pain, only when we are willing to engage in the challenge of life, only when we are willing to take a real look at who we are and allow the light of Christ to shine upon us, only when we allow the refiner's fire to begin to work in us and through us. You do not get transformation by escaping. You do not receive transformation by simply listening to those who will tickle your ears and say, oh no, all is well, peace, peace, when there is no real peace. We must be molded into the image of Jesus. C.S. Lewis gives this great image of this. It's a little bit long, but I want us just to hear it. Here's what he says. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house at first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know that those jobs needed doing and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and to live in it himself. Isn't that a great image? It's almost like that house just two doors down that we used to own, remember? And they tore it down. If you don't remember or if you don't know what I'm talking about, just drive down here, you know, just about three houses down, and you'll see, right? All of a sudden, it went from this little dinky thing, this little cottage, all of a sudden to this almost magnificent palace. It is wholly different. Now, most of us, most of us would love, we think, oh, we just want to be like that beautiful palace. But the truth, of course, is that going from this little cottage to this beautiful palace, it must endure abominable pain. There are real changes and challenges that must be endured if you are going to reach this. Now we could sit here, we could, we could Hananiah everybody and say, oh no, it will just magically occur. You'll fall asleep one day and when you wake up, all of a sudden you will be gentle and patient and generous and loving. Oh, and you could just come in here every week and we can just say, it's just going to happen. It's going to sprinkle a little bit on you. But then no one actually gets transformed. And so we must follow what Jesus says, which is this reality that this is a painful thing, that moving from a cottage to a beautiful palace is a challenge. And what Jesus knows is that none of us want to hear that. That's why over these last, I've been struggling with this, it feels like every week over the last three weeks now, four weeks, whatever it's been, that I've been saying the exact same message again and again. It reminds me a little bit of the conversation that I have with my uh, children. We've kind of taken a riff. They've not seen A Few Good Men, but I took the riff off of A Few Good Men, right, where, 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 where he says, you know, where we say, do you understand me? And I after, you know, oftentimes, you know, having to, I mean, usually my kids are perfectly behaved. 
but there's been one time when one of them wasn't. And when you have to be sterner, do you have to say, there has to be a change? Do you understand me? And they say, yes. Do you understand me? Do I make sense? Yes. Do I make sense? Crystal. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He wants to make sure that we are crystal clear. So he keeps going back to this again and again and again to make sure that we understand fully the transformation that is needed if we long to follow and look like Jesus. Now, the question that this begs is this. What does that mean? Well, one of the things that we have to do is we have to begin to make a, deci a decision to follow Jesus. Do you know what is at the root of the word decision? Anyone know? It is to cut. It's where we also get the word incision. Which means this. This is why I love this. Because when you make a decision, it means that you have to cut something out. When you make a decision, it means that you are cutting something out. When you say yes to something, you are saying no to something. Now again, we, especially we as Americans, we don't like that. We want to just add something to everything, right? That's, that's much more pleasant. Let's just add again a dabble, do you? Let's just do that, Jesus. No, a decision means that you are cutting something out. You are having to say to no to some things so that you can say yes to a better thing. So what do we say no to? And what are we saying yes to? And I love the way that Jesus begins to describe this in this passage. And he says this. He says, you all are really good at reading physical things. If you see clouds coming in the west, and that would have been where the Mediterranean Sea is, you know what that means? What's going to happen when you see clouds coming in from the west? It's going to it's gonna rain. Or when you feel the winds from the south, right, which is going down to Egypt into, into the desert, when you feel those winds from the south coming, then you know it's about to get hot. And he says, you guys are very good at understanding that. But what you don't seem to understand is how to understand what's happening spiritually around you. Like, I am Jesus right here in your midst and yet you don't understand, A, who I am, and you don't understand, B, what it means to actually follow me. You do not yet know what things you need to cut out that you can say yes fully to me. And that changes. It changes a lot over the time just in terms of our ability to see. So what N.T. Wright says is that we have to really be paying attention. Every generation must be looking at this and saying, okay, well, what is it? For our generation, what is our culture saying? But where are the Hananiahs in our culture that say, uh, this is what will bring you peace. This is what will bring you contentment. This is what will bring you joy. But in all reality, they are not actually those things which will bring you peace and contentment and joy. Now, there's lots of things. But we're not going to talk about all of those things today because brunch. It is the only thing that can short, make me shorten a sermon is brunch. Not, not y'all's comments. Oh, no, I keep going longer. But brunch? One of those things, it seems to me, is this Hananiah. And like most things, Hananiah's words, these, these kind of tickling of ears, they have some truth to them. Is the sense that if you can really, really know yourself, if you can really dive into yourself, know who you are, 
then, then you will be at peace. Then you will be content. Then you will have real joy. Now, please hear me. There is some truth to this. This is nothing against counselors or spiritual directors. I like both of those. I've done both of those things. There was certainly something to being self-aware that there is a great gift in that. In fact, uh, uh, John Calvin, one of the great reformers, uh, he said that, hey, if you want to know who God is, you have to know who you, are, who you are. You need to know yourself. But then he went on to say this. If you want to know who you are, then you also need to know who God is. See, one of the things that, at least in my mind, that I see happening is I see people who really want to know who they are, and so they just begin to kind of say, I've got to figure out who am I, who am I, who am I, and they begin to turn in on themselves. They begin to almost separate themselves from others because they think, oh, once I kind of really know who I am, once I have searched the depths of everything and spent all this time and this energy and these resources on myself, then I will begin to find peace. Then I will begin to find contentment. Then I will begin to find joy. But I love what I heard several weeks ago. I don't even remember now who said it. Who said that what we believe is this. We believe that you actually are not the story. But that your story is a part of a larger story. In other words, you know, we've talked about this a lot, this tapestry of the kingdom of God, and the reason why we talk about this tapestry, you know, that, that reaches all the way back through the Old Testament, and, and that, you know, we're here, and, and that we believe it's right here with us all across the globe, and, you know, as followers of Jesus, and it's going to continue on. What we believe is that actually, if you want to find peace and contentment and joy, yes, you know, understand who you are, but understand that it is a part of this larger tapestry. Begin to understand where are you in this tapestry of the kingdom of God that actually this is where you will begin to find real peace and contentment and joy. It's one of the reasons why. One of the things I love about ZPC and I, I, try, I, I love ZPC but I try not to brag on it too much because you know I, it feels like we're just being prideful. I don't want to do that but one of the gifts it seems to me about a church like ZPC is that we have so many opportunities to be able to give and to serve. I've been thinking about that uh, I, I was talking to Brendan Saget our middle school high school director last uh, week and he was talking about a particular high school boy. I'm not going to name his name because, you know, that would be just like the worst. And, and, and he was talking about how over the last couple of years, he has seen this high school boy just begin to serve in more and more ways. And he said, here's what's great, is that there are ways that nobody actually knows about. You know, when I, when, I, when I hear about that and, and, and when I think, you know, next week, if you're here next week, uh, some of our middle schoolers and, and early high schoolers are going to actually be up here leading in worship as well uh, uh, in, in the musical part of our worship. And I love that as well. What this does, right, this isn't just so, okay, they need to practice and it's not, oh, good, this is going to help them get into, you know, college somewhere. No, no, no. This is this opportunities because what we believe with our covenant children and with all of us is that the more that you can begin to serve, the more that you begin to see that you are a part of a larger story. And the more that you can begin to see that you are a part of a larger story, the more then that that's when you begin to find real peace and contentment. And what you begin to see is, oh, there are things that I have to cut out. I'm not going to spend all of my wealth 
on myself. I'm not going to spend all of my time on myself. I'm not going to make every decision, right? This is a bit like the rich fool like we talked about a few weeks ago where all of a sudden it just becomes enclosed and all I can see is my own desires and my own needs. No, no, no. This is the, this is the radical upside-down nature of the kingdom, which is that actually the more that you give and see that you're a part of a larger story, actually that's what gives you more peace, more hope, more joy. I was thinking about this again on Wednesday night. On Wednesday night, we had the great opportunity. Uh, there were some of us who gathered here in the chapel um, when a guy named Fauzi came, and, and he is on staff at this uh, church, this large Presbyterian church in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, and so he was telling us all about the different things that God's doing. It's, it's one of the churches that we partner with uh, so that when you give, we're also giving to this congregation and to the ministry that they're doing. And as he was talking about this, he was describing how um, uh, when ISIS back in 2012, when they were kind of going through uh, Kurdistan, northern Iraq, um, you know, in that, in that kind of that, that great, uh, that horrific uh, journey that they were making through, that there were the group, the people named the Yazidi people who lived up on a mountain. And, uh, and, and so I'm not going to go into great detail because, quite frankly, it's kind of harrowing. But, but basically, when they went through, um, um, they disposed of all the men, uh, and then the, the, the women and the, the young women endured uh, trauma. And abuse. Um, and so it's this horrific story. And he says, but, but over the last few years, what they've begun to do, this church, they've begun to have this ministry there with these women. And one of the things that they've begun to do and pray for and help them is to see that they were created in the image of God. As you can imagine, after enduring something like this, you might question some of that. And so one of the first things that they're doing is, is helping them to see that they have been created in God's image. And then what they've also begun to do is, is help them to kind of figure out how to make a living, right? And so they even, uh, he, had, he had some pictures. I, I want us to see this picture. Uh, these are some of these Yazidi women who lived through this great trauma. Uh, and there they are. They're like making things that they can then sell and, and give and I have to tell you that I was, as I was hearing this story, one of the things that I was just kind of thoughtful of is I could feel the joy kind of bubbling up in my spirit of this story, right? This is this great reminder that a part of what it means to be a part of the larger story of Jesus Christ is that we are doing things globally. This is not just something that's happening right here. It is something, it is a difference that we are able to make across the globe. And what I want you to know is that you are a part of that larger story. See, Hananiah is going to say, oh, if you want that peace, that joy, that contentment, right, just keep thinking about yourself and keep spending on yourself. It's all about those things, those vacations, all those other things that you do. This is what will really bring this, you know, you deserve it. You're the best. You're great. But your real sense of identity and purpose comes by being shaped more like Jesus and seeing how you align with the larger story of God. Now, another one of these sirens, if you will, that we oftentimes like to listen to is the sense of, the, of ambition and success. We oftentimes think, right, whether we want to or not, and I get into this as well, is thinking, okay, if we're successful, if we can climb that ladder just so, then we will be full of peace. Then we will be full of joy, right? And oftentimes we think, if I could just reach this place. And it's amazing how once you reach that place, the real place of peace and joy is just a little bit higher. 
So whatever it might be, this much wealth acquired or this much of uh, my, my children doing well or making the all-star team or whatever else it may be, this much. And we begin to think that this is where real peace and joy and contentment. And whenever I think about something like this, I'm always reminded of our brother in Christ here, uh, Dave Gall. And uh, Dave, you know, many uh, uh, years ago talked about this from right up here. It's probably like eight years ago or so now. And I'm not going to go into all of Dave's story. Um, many of you know Dave. Dave was very successful in his career uh, um, um, and kind of worked his way up and, and did great. And he said he loved it, right? And every two or three years, he got to move to a new place. And, and, and it was all the excitement, right? I mean, most of us could kind of picture the, 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 the great joy of that. Everything was going very smoothly. And then... When one of his sons was just about to enter his last year of high school, he left his father, Dave, this note. Now, as Dave said, he left it early in the morning so that, that Dave couldn't actually respond to it right then, which was probably good, he said. And I'm not going to read the whole note or the whole message. I just want to read one portion of it with Dave's permission. Dad, I only have one more year at home before I'm gone, along with our chances at getting to know each other. I know work is important. I know that you want us to be better through your advice. I know that you do love us. But, Dad, I also know that I really need a friend now more than ever, and I really want it to be you. Please? Now, as you can imagine, that's a gut-wrenching thing to hear from your son. And what Dave says is that this really kind of started and set off this whole new kind of chapter of his life. As he began to wrestle with the way that he had kind of been living and with the way that his ambitions had been there and his, you know, adventures of what's next and what's next and you know, what Dave wanted to say, he said defensively, and I think most of us would say that, I'm, I'm doing this for you. Don't be ungrateful. You like your clothes. You like the schools. You like all of this. And yet what his son was helping him to begin to see is those things are nowhere nearly as important as you simply being present. And so this began this kind of this land of longer change in his life. And, and he began to ask more and more often, well, then why am I here? And what, what is the point? He went through great banquet, and it helped him to kind of reframe some of those priorities and those values. And, you know, Dave, after a while, then he got, he got really involved in Romania uh, and the churches in Romania. This is just after the communism had kind of fallen. And, and the impact that he's had over those years is amazing. I got to had the great honor of going with Dave to Romania one time. And he's, he, he, I don't know, it was like the Pope. I mean, he's just like this and they're running around. They love him because he has cared for them and he has loved them. And he said the way that he began to look, now he kept working for a little while, but the way that he looked at his job, the way that he began to look at everything, that all those things began to change. You see, Hananiah would say, this is what's really important. This is what's really important. Have your ambition. Have your success. This is what's really important. But what Jesus would call us to, and sometimes it takes this great disruption of a note from a child to say, no, 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 no. It's these relationships that you cannot overlook. Now, as I thought about this a little bit more, 
I thought of a third thing, and we talk about this a decent amount, that Hananiah would oftentimes tell us, which is that image is what is most important. And we don't want to believe it as Christians, but the truth is we wrestle with it more than we care to admit. What we, much like others, are deathly afraid of is that people will know that we are flawed, that people will know that we are not perfect, that people will know that we are human. One of the great gifts that Dave did for me on that day eight years ago or so was that he was incredibly vulnerable and honest about the mistakes that he had made. These aren't Dave's words, I don't think. They're more of my words, but in many ways, they were a death. But you know what Jesus is always saying? He's saying that life comes out of death. And one of the things that I said to Dave yesterday as I was talking to him on the phone, and I I hope that you hear this, is that his willingness to be honest has changed my life and has changed the life of my children. Because his willingness to be honest about that has caused me, I think about his story at least monthly, probably almost weekly. I think about this almost confession that he had, his going first, so that I could then begin to think through, okay, what is most important? Yes, I want things to go well. Yes, I want the church to do well. Yes, I want to look good in people's eyes. Yes, all of these things. I suffer from all of this ambition at times and this ego at times. But what, I, what, what, what Dave's story, by going first, this incredible, beautiful, painful death of a confession has helped me to see is to bring more life into the life of my own family, and I feel quite certain that I am not alone in that. And it is painful, and it is challenging, and there are things that we have to cut. We have to make those decisions almost daily to choose the way of Jesus and real life and peace and contentment of joy rather than tickling our ears like Hananiah would have us to do and say, you can have it all. You can have all the success in the world. You can have all the wealth in the world. You can have all those in every relationship that you have. You can have all of that. But my guess is that when we hear that, What we are hearing is Hananiah. We are not actually hearing Jesus. These words from Jesus in this 12th chapter are remarkably difficult. But what I also know is that if we long to become brighter and beautiful... As the scripture says, as Jesus enters into us and we begin to be transformed like him. That it will require our our reckoning with what to cut. And so my hope and prayer is that you would have honest conversations with yourself. Even more vulnerable with somebody else. To say, where at times are we falling under this illusion of Hananiah and listening to these words that offer and promise peace but cannot bring it? And what might we do in order 
to welcome Jesus into our lives deeper and deeper and to decide to follow him. That we then might live lives of true meaning and purpose, no matter the cost. Amen? Let's pray. God, we keep going back to Luke 12. We remember that you repeat, Lord, what you know will be difficult for us to hear. And so I pray that you would help us to hear you today. Confront us. Help us to be open to you. Help us not to mold you like us, but to be molded into who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen.